Amen. Please, if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We're in Galatians 5, beginning at verse 26. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, be pleased uh, to send your Spirit to make alive to us these words he has inspired. Uh, free our hearts and minds from all the distractions and concerns that we have, that we might meet with you in these moments. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You may be seated. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth well these are some of the most famous words in the bible perhaps the most famous after psalm uh, 23 frequently heard at uh, a wedding i have uh, learned them and forgotten them numerous times. And if I can be honest with you, they are some of the most revealing words in the Bible for, for me. Here's what I mean. The very first line, Paul writes about words, about speech, of words carefully crafted and chosen. And I love words. I love to read. I love to teach. In the second sentence, he speaks about the love of insight and knowledge and of powerful faith. And I covet these things. We are uh, much poorer, as my library will attest to, because I so much want uh, these things. And it's about boasting and sacrifice. Oh, that I love. I love what I've accomplished. And often I think about how hard I've worked. And I like to think of myself as a loving uh, person, but when I read on, I see that I'm not. I actually see that I'm often without love, that my boasting and my pride and my conceit are exposed by these verses. See, I'd like to think that my pursuit of words and knowledge and service is purely out of a deep love for God. And yet, I boast in them the way uh, Tavia's wife does in Fiddler on the Roof when she says, I cook for you, I clean for you, I raised your children. If that's not love, what is? Well, Paul's words here are profound. 
And it's possible uh, to have superlative speech, ultimate uh, knowledge, unparalleled sacrifice, and to have not loved anyone but yourself. Ouch. Love and pride are opposites. They cannot coexist in our lives at the same uh, time. When I'm proud, I'm self-absorbed. When I love, uh, I'm forgetful of myself, and I'm absorbed in the concerns of others. And here in our text in Galatians, Paul's writing about pride, that's verse 26, and love in chapter uh, 6, verse 2, as he speaks about the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. As we saw last week, that's the very goal of gospel freedom. It's that we would live a life of love. And Paul moves back and forth in these six verses as he writes about our responsibilities and loving each other and how our view of ourselves affects the way we relate to other uh, people. Our conduct toward other people is actually shaped by the opinion we have of ourselves. And we've been seeing in this letter, especially last time, that Paul's contrasting the life of following the Spirit, the life that's led by the Spirit, and uh, the uh, self-life, these two entirely different ways of living. And these two ways of living uh, shape how we think about ourselves and actually how we uh, relate to people. The self-life leads to self-deception. Now, this way of living is the default setting in everybody. It's to live apart from God. It's to pursue life uh, on our own terms, uh, out of our own uh, resources. And it's a life that's uh, gripped uh, by a desire, desires that uh, grow to excess and that cause us to have these images in our minds, these, these pictures of what the good life looks like, of what it would look like to have a satisfactory life, a happy life. And then what we do is we set about developing strategies and, and goals to reach that, and we figure out how to use people to actually achieve what we uh, desire. This is true of moral people, whether your morality is of the liberal progressive uh, variety or the more uh, traditional conservative variety. Moral people have codes of behavior. Do this the right thing, be responsible, and life will turn out good. And then there are pleasure people, uh, people whose life is oriented around self-discovery, self-expression, and pleasure. And they approach life from the standpoint of, I'll do what it takes to meet my needs, what feels good, and then I'll be satisfied. I'll be fulfilled in doing this. And both ways of life uh, can be made religious. They can uh, be combined with really probably any form of religion that you could imagine. Uh, You can put a veneer of Christianity over either of these approaches uh, to life. 
But both of these ways of living, the, the way of morality or the way of pursuing uh, self-expression and pleasure, uh, do not require a radical relationship of dependency on trust in God. And in both of them, the self-life is left fully intact. Now let me uh, just pull down into this a little bit with you and dig, dig a little bit deeper here. Paul says that the self-life here is proud, it's conceited. That word conceit is from a Greek word that means empty glory. It means that there's within us this desire uh, to gain glory and honor. Uh, we desire uh, to be people that matter, a person that has uh, weight or, or gravitas. And uh, this desire, which Paul labels conceit, comes in two forms. It has a strong uh, form. This is a person whose way of looking at themselves is full of self-confidence. They're sure of their superiority. I'm more important uh, than other people. I'm more virtuous uh, than other uh, people. I'm right. I'm strong. And this person expects other people to uh, agree with them, uh, to embrace their point of view. And when they move out in relationships, they actually provoke other uh, people. They challenge people to a duel. Uh, they're quick to be critical of other people. Uh, they're ready uh, to fight, to demonstrate that they actually are better uh, than other people. There's also a weaker form of conceit. It's, it's a way of looking at yourselves. It's a way of uh, seeking uh, glory. Uh, this person feels inferior. They have a poor self-image. They think of themselves as a failure. They tell themselves, I don't do anything well. Poor me, I deserve uh, better. Other people uh, do this much better than I do. And what they are hoping, actually expecting, is that other people will fill them up. They'll tell you, oh no, you're really a lot better uh, than you think. You're a good person. You're a wonderful person. But the problem is, is that nobody can actually fill them up. And so they move out actually in their relationships with envy and jealousy, although they probably don't see that's quite what uh, they're doing because they just are turned in on themselves thinking, I'm lacking glory. I've got to find a way to get it uh, full from other people. And so provoking, which is what the strong form produces, and envying are products of actually the very same inner condition. Uh, and even though provoking and envying are really opposite behaviors, they both come from the need of pride uh, to gain glory. And this uh, arises out of self-deception. And it leads to boasting and uh, comparison, which results in conflict. In verse uh, uh, 3 of chapter 6, Paul writes... For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, uh, 
Well, on the one hand, there's a strong form of boasting. It's kind of obvious, you know. You trash talk somebody on the basketball court or when you're playing uh, tennis. Um, You uh, keep a record of your wins. You remind uh, people uh, that you're a winner. Uh, You're constantly reminding other people of your strengths. And when you do that, it often leads to conflict because other people think, who do they think they are? that they would talk this way. Uh, And then there's a weak form of conceit which says, I deserve better. I deserve what you have. Uh, I've worked harder, uh, given more. I'm more uh, virtuous than you lucky people who've achieved something I haven't been able to. Can you hear the boasting in that? And as a result, they compare themselves to other people. People, but let each one test his own work, and then he'll have reason to boast. It will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. You see, they compare themselves to other people, and in the strong form of conceit, they feel superior to other people. And so it leads them to put other people down. Uh, they're, they're critical. They complain about other people. Uh, they gossip about uh, other people. They reveal to other people the weaknesses and flaws of someone else. And uh, sometimes uh, Christians do this in the disguise of praying, you know, uh, poor uh, Sally or poor George. We need to pray for him because of this uh, flaw in them, this uh, weakness uh, in them. That's, of course, a very terrible thing to engage in. One of the more, I would say, painful discoveries uh, that I made Uh, I just remembered so vividly when it really dawned on me that uh, I was in the grips of envy. It happened in the first uh, church that I was uh, serving in, and things just weren't going the way I thought they should. And it just continued like that. It drug on for years. It didn't seem that anything I did made any uh, difference. And Uh, It was also a very lonely uh, time. Uh, I didn't have any colleagues close by. The closest uh, pastor colleague was uh, about 60 miles away. And so you would think I would want to go to the gatherings where uh, the pastors uh, met uh, every, every three months. But actually, I didn't. I felt so much like a failure. I felt so powerless to change what uh, I was experiencing. I didn't want to go because I felt like they were all just so much better than me. And eventually, I came to see that what was really underneath that was my envy. I wanted what I thought they uh, had. Only the gospel offers us a cure from the self-deception of pride and conceit. Only the gospel makes us neither self-confident nor self-disdaining. Only it can free us from the feelings of superiority or inferiority. Only it can free us from the need to boast and the drive to make comparisons. Only it can free us from glory-seeking. It does it because the gospel creates for us an entirely new self-image, one that has weight, one that gives us a a glory that we didn't earn, that no circumstance or event in our lives or people can strip from us. The gospel gives us a proper view of ourselves. It tells us, it tells me that I'm really a rebel, 
that I'm self-deceived about who I am. It exposes my pride, my desire to be uh, in control, my wanting more, you name it, money, sex, power, influence. And I'm deceived about you know, really what I'm like and how people actually experience me in relationship. I actually want, the gospel exposes this, I want God to be the venture capitalist who will invest in my dreams, what I want. I want his gifts, but I really don't want him. At the same time, the gospel tells me that I'm really loved and honored in the eyes of God, that I'm unique and special to him, even though sin has ravaged every part of who I am. Now, God's eyes are the only eyes that really matter. It's his opinion of me that's ultimate. And that means the opinions of other people, the criticisms of other people don't ultimately crush me. They might sting, but they don't ultimately crush me. Even my views of myself, they're not ultimate. Uh, no, I don't need to create an image for myself. Uh, I don't need to manufacture uh, an identity. I don't need to curate something on social media so that people will think a certain way about me. Only a deepening faith in what God has done in the cross can gain us this kind of freedom. Only this gift of security can end the insecurity of our self-image that's the engine behind our conceit. And this enables us to test our own actions. What Paul means by this is that we can take a realistic assessment of ourselves. Not comparing ourselves to other people. There are always people uh, who uh, will have greater uh, gifts and had greater advantages, and there are people who have lesser gifts and lesser advantages thus. No, what Paul's saying is you compare yourself to yourself. Compare yourself to what you were like a year ago, uh, five years ago, or even last week, uh, to see if there's progress or not. Now, pride is isolating, it is toxic. To relationships. And the gospel alone can free us of pride. It enables us to experience vital connection with, to other people in the community that the gospel creates, in the kinds of relationships that the gospel forms. But it is not easy. We prize our privacy and our independence. And, uh, and so while our hearts at some level actually desire to be known and loved, we are pulled by pride to want to be private, to be left alone in our freedom and independence. And the gospel calls us into relationship, into uh, community, because we have all been saved by Christ Jesus. And we all have a share in him and thus a share in each other. We have a common allegiance. The church is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, it takes a lot to actually do that. And I would say, and many others would say this, in the last 10, 6 years, the 
the fault lines that have maybe been under the surface, the fractures that actually exist in uh, groups of churches and in local churches have become evident as various forces have shifted uh, in, the, in the public life. And our differences about these things, whether they be political or social or matters of values, that were before they were regarded as not so important, they needed to rise to the very top. Now they're out there in the open and they're, they're threatening to fracture everything, to tear us apart. Now the gospel's strong enough to overcome this, but only if we'll take its cure for our pride. You see, it's pride that says that we must think alike about all these things, that we must agree with each other about all these things, that we must value everything in the same way. That's pride. And that inevitably breaks the bonds of relationship uh, with uh, people. You see, the gospel calls us to relate to each other with great humility and with a real desire to try to understand how people experience the things in life that have shaped what they value and their views. And that's all very secondary to what we share in Christ, which makes it possible for us to actually love people in whom we have substantive differences. The life lived in the Spirit leads to love. And Paul gives us three snapshots of it. There's a lot more to the life of love than these three snapshots. But he says we restore those who fall into sin, who have fallen into the point that they're trapped in it, they're caught in it. Now Paul is being very realistic about Christians. Christians will sin. And some will fall into a pattern of living that they cannot free themselves from. And Paul is saying we have a responsibility to people when that happens. It is the responsibility of every Christian. It's not the responsibility of just the pastor or the elders. It's a shared responsibility by all of us. But it's not every sin. We don't have to go to people every time they fail to love. Sometimes I joke, we don't, uh, we don't uh, do this for a failure to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, you know, every time a person commits sin, we're not to rush in. After all, love covers a multitude of sins, the Scriptures tell us. Uh, uh, love keeps no record of wrongs, Paul tells us. Uh, but Christians, any Christian can, and actually most do at some point in their lives, fall into some pattern of sin that becomes a way of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German Christian who returned uh, to his native home because of the rise of Nazism and ultimately was sent to a concentration uh, camp because of his opposition uh, to Hitler, uh, wrote uh, these words about Christian community. Nothing could be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing could be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Now, we'll only live this out if we stop hiding from each other and actually allow other people into our lives. 
and pride greatly resists this. It offers several excuses like, I should be able uh, to do this without others, just me and God. Or, I have a right to my privacy. Or, I know better than they do. They don't understand me. I don't have to let them in. Or, I'm ashamed and I don't really want anybody to know. Or, I can't trust them because after all, Christians are famous for shooting their wounded. And you see, the more isolated you are, the less you will trust others because you'll never actually know how it is that they'll respond to you in your brokenness, in your weakness. And so it just feels safe to keep them at a distance. The truth is, we've got to get past this idealism that imagines there's some kind of like perfect Christian community. The truth is, is that the only people Christ has to help you are flawed brothers and sisters who are imperfect and aren't able to consistently and flawlessly love. They don't consistently walk in the spirit, but this is who Christ has given us. And your isolation and even perhaps numbing leaves us in bondage. It leaves uh, the body of Christ weaker. And so Paul says that the body of Christ in love, whether invited or not, is to enter in uh, to the life of another who's trapped in a sin. It, It must be done, though, with one goal in mind. Now, a couple of years ago, I was uh, helping a friend clean out the back of his pickup. It was a half-ton pickup, and uh, I didn't really uh, think carefully about just how high up it was, so I decided to jump off backwards, and I misjudged how far down the cement pavement was, and I fell back, and uh, I injured my arm. It bothered me. It was Friday. It bothered me a lot. And so by Monday, I decided I needed to go have it checked out. And of course, they wanted to take x-rays. And it really hurt to have my arm stretched out repeatedly to get all the angles. And it turned out it was my elbow was broken in two places. And anybody who's ever had a broken bone set or uh, had uh, an arm put back in its socket realizes it's painful to have something restored to its normal. Well, that word that Paul's using here about restoring is a word used for the setting of a broken uh, bone or a dislocated one. And restoration means that the goal of getting into somebody's life and and working uh, with them when something has really happened where they're stuck in some pattern of sin must be healing. It's not to humiliate. It's not to make them pay for the hurt they've caused or to punish them for the damage they've done to Christ's reputation. I've been at meetings, sadly, where in fact that is what people wanted to do. They wanted to uh, punish some minister uh, for the damage he had done and the way he'd hurt Christ's reputation. The spirit in which such restoration must take place is one of great gentleness and humility that's keenly aware that this could just as easily have been you than that person. 
Indeed, to think it couldn't be you is to set yourself up. It's to put yourself in a place of great risk because it is indeed greatly possible that your pride uh, will be what comes before your fall. We are to bear one another's burdens. That's verse uh, two. And a burden can be anything from the need uh, uh, for a ride when you need to take your car to the mechanic uh, to uh, material help in a time of unemployment. It, it could be standing with someone in a, in a crisis or something very difficult and just being present for them and with them emotionally, uh, offering them what spiritual support and friendship you can. This is a duty we have to each other, and it's one of the primary ways that we demonstrate our love uh, for each other. And small groups can be a wonderful structure that supports this, where we can get to know each other, where we can become aware of these uh, burdens. And I commend you for wanting to start a small group ministry. I will tell you that having a small group ministry will be inconvenient. It will come as a price. And when a congregation has uh, more people who are out of the stage of being young families than it has young families, it often means that the older members, the people whose lives have moved out of the family stage, will have to creatively serve those who are younger and with small children if they want them to be a part of that uh, ministry. Of course, all of this needs to be uh, understood realistically, it's simply not possible for even a small group of people to meet every need uh, that we may have. Paul, in verse 5, ends with another word for load, but this one's often used to describe a backpack. And what he's saying is here is that we are responsible. God has given us things that we alone are responsible for. There's interdependence, not dependency, within the body of Christ. Being in gospel community, having meaningful, even significant gospel relationships doesn't make us co-dependent. Each of us has to give an account for our lives. And so it is that each of us must take responsibility for those things that God has entrusted to us. Jesus lived this way with a small band of his followers. He loved them. He forgave them. He bore with them. Even though they were often self-absorbed, they certainly didn't understand who he was. Uh, they didn't grasp his greatness or uh, the depths of his humility. But he did all of that not only for them, but for us. He has borne our burdens as well. God the Son in becoming Jesus humbled himself in becoming fully human and he accepted and embraced all the limitations of a human body with its weakness and even the possibility of death. He humbly carried our burdens as he bore with patience the ignorance, the insults, and the opposition of sinful men. He was so secure in his self-image of who he was uh, that he uh, loved uh, us uh, to the uttermost by dying a slave's death in order to free us 
from our pride and our conceit. The Lord of life died for us. He bore the burden of God's wrath for us. He humbled himself by being buried, and God raised him from the dead. Let's praise him. Let's serve him. Let's live for him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, grant us that you might uh, free us, Lord, even this morning, one step deeper out of the darkness of our pride and conceit. Lord, open our eyes uh, to see Jesus and what he's done for us. And Lord, uh, lead us as a church into a deeper expression of relationships that are deeply shaped by the gospel. For we pray